Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Thank you for joining the DNS podcast. Today we will be discussing dietitian-led enteral feeding programs with registered dietitian and certified specialist in oncology nutrition, Laura Kearns. Laura received her master's in public health from the University of Michigan and completed her dietetic internship at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. She has spent almost 10 years working exclusively in oncology, which has included the development of three outpatient cancer center nutrition programs. Over the past three years, Laura has overseen the research, development, implementation, and evaluation of Louisiana's first hospital-based food pantry. This work awarded her as the New Orleans Healthcare Hero in 2019. Additionally, she is involved in clinical research, including a clinical trial to evaluate diet interventions versus standard of care treatment for hepatocellular carcinoma. Laura is active in her local dietetic associations and has held offices at the local and state level. She has given lectures and poster presentations at the local, state, and national level relating to malnutrition, oncology nutrition, food insecurity, and enteral nutrition. She was one of the recipients of the Abbott Nutrition Alliance Award for her work in malnutrition. And in 2020, Laura was awarded the Outstanding Dietitian of the Year for the state of Louisiana. Laura, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for that awesome introduction. So I wanted to start talking about you and, you know, help us understand your current experiences that led you to leading an enteral nutrition program at your own institution? So when I first started in oncology about 10 years ago, I worked at a small community hospital and I had very minor exposure to any type of enteral nutrition. We didn't use it very often. We occasionally used it in head and neck cancers. And when we did, I worked with a very, very experienced hands-on nurse who took care of most of, you know, the care instruction and everything involving the tube feedings. So I didn't have a whole lot of formal education for myself on how to actually use tubes and what to do with them. When I took my second position as an oncology dietitian at a larger community hospital, I was working in an academic center that had a very high population of uninsured patients as well as Medicaid patients. And when I started working there, we had several instances of patients coming in. It was kind of back to back to back that this happened. We had patients coming in. I don't know what this thing is. I don't know how to use it. What am I supposed to be putting in it? Just having no idea what to do with their feeding tubes. And I had always kind of had in the back of my mind that I just personally felt I needed to be more hands-on with feeding tubes. I'm the dietitian. This is supposed to be my expertise. 
I should really know how to use these and be able to answer all these questions when patients come in lost. You know, I can't always guarantee I'm going to have a very experienced nurse around that can take care of it for me. So that led to kind of my own personal interest in tube feedings and then my own personal growth, like learning the ins and outs and kind of becoming more of an expert in this area. What would you say are the benefits of a program like this where the dietitian is really leading the initiative? So there's definitely benefits from multiple angles. Uh, the first benefits I saw were definitely immediately to the patients. So when I took the hands-on approach to actually leading the charge, as far as making sure I knew when patients were getting feeding tubes placed, making sure they had education before the placement, right after the placement, and then throughout the process, um, my patients were very comfortable with using their feeding tubes. And a lot of the fears that they had about it were eliminated. So, you know, the families knew where their two feedings were coming from. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew how much they knew what to do if it clogged. They knew how to prevent clogs, all that kind of thing. So they really felt comfortable with the process and we were having a lot less walk-ins with, you know, these, they felt like it was an emergency. You know, what do I do? I don't know how to do this. So we, we eliminated a lot of that and our patients did great. And so I saw a lot of improvement from when we started what we call the dietitian-led enteral clinic, we saw a benefit on the hospital end by looking previous to when I did this and afterwards. We had, in the five years that I worked at this hospital, I can count on one hand how many infections and complications we had with our feeding tubes. We attributed that just to all the education and close follow-up that these patients had. And so we're checking their tubes if they're a head and neck patient, for example, uh, and going through radiation. We would check their tubes pretty much every week, make sure they were clean, make sure they didn't look infected, make sure the patients were still comfortable using them. They had a lot of close follow-up. When they weren't in active treatment, we still followed them every two to four weeks until they got their tubes out. So they actually got their tubes removed a lot sooner which again helped reduce any kind of infections, complications, clogging, that kind of a thing. We did a lot of education about how to administer medications correctly. So that's usually the number one reason patients come in with clogged feeding tubes. So we saw a lot of benefits from not having to send patients to the ER, not having infections, not having big cases of dehydration and issues like that. So there's a big benefit to the hospital from that side. I think it's a really interesting concept that, you know, you called this, it's the dietitian enteral clinic. What was your approach when you wanted to start this program? And, you know, did you get any pushback from other disciplines who maybe would have been the traditional owners or operators of a program like this? So surprisingly, or maybe not, I didn't get any pushback at all because it seemed like nobody wanted to own it. Um, so most of our feeding tubes were going through at this particular hospital. I think everybody's different, but ours were going through the interventional radiology department and very occasionally the general surgery department, but nobody wanted to have anything to do with the tubes once they were placed. You know, the physicians kind of had that mindset of I put them in and then I'm done. So the idea that I was willing to take this on to meet with patients before they were placed and explain the process and, and give them a formal education before the placement and then willing to follow up with them throughout the process 
And afterwards, I think there was actually more of a sense of relief that somebody was actually going to be taking, taking this on and being responsible for it. And I definitely had to develop relationships with the physicians that were in the interventional radiology department, because if something did go wrong, I needed to be able to reach out to them to say, you know, hey, this person's, you know, tube is not fitting correctly, or it's clogged, or I think something's going on, it looks infected. And uh, they had clinic twice a week, so I could get them, they would let me just call their scheduler directly to get somebody on the schedule. And we would try to handle it on an outpatient basis as much as possible, which we were usually able to do. I think that's an interesting approach when you're working that closely that, you know, you can call and add to the schedule versus jumping through all the hoops that a patient may have to go through. So you're certainly able to expedite the care that they need when you've identified that there's something going on that needs follow-up. Yeah, having that relationship was definitely very beneficial both ways. I think they, like I said, they were comfortable with me working with the patients. They were really glad somebody was following up with them and that it didn't just always fall on them. And the more experienced I was, the better I was at identifying things sooner, knowing what was and wasn't an emergency, knowing what could be dealt with, you know, today, tomorrow, two weeks from now, you know, the more I saw, the better I was at it. So, you know, it was mutually beneficial and a mutual learning process for sure. So were there any barriers from the point where you said, hey, I've got this great idea to actually seeing your first patient? Well, the barrier was me. So I, like I said, I didn't have a lot of hands-on experience. You know, I never learned from a preceptor, anyone how to do this. Um, I never, you know, worked hands-on with feeding tubes before. So I was kind of the roadblock. I wanted to do it, but I didn't know how. And so what I did was I just worked on my own education. So I worked with our clinical leadership at the hospital to kind of create a competency list, which included things like watching these procedures. So I actually understood what happened when a feeding tube was placed. Because a lot of patient questions, even for me, were about what happens when they put this in? What does it do to me? Where is it going? What does it look like? And all of that. Then I worked with representatives from different companies that actually make the feeding tubes. And I asked them if they could bring me, you know, maybe some expired tubes that they couldn't use anymore that I could use for education. And then I worked with some uh, different dietitians who actually worked for Enerol infusion companies because they had more of that education, hands-on experience, had worked a lot with patients. I had them come kind of go through step-by-step with me how to educate patients, give me some things that I could read, uh, educate. I could use of the patients, videos I could watch for my own education. And then the first time that I sat down to teach a patient how to use their tube, I actually had another dietitian there who was from one of our enteral companies, and she was kind enough to come watch me um, and answer any questions that might have happened, you know, during the process and then give me feedback afterwards. So that was hugely helpful for me. And it was entirely nerve-wracking the first time I did it by myself, but I did it. The patient had no idea it was my first time. They did great. Um, I, I definitely used the teach back method. So I flush the tube, then I have them flush the tube. And then we do a little bit of a feeding with an enteral product while I'm there watching and we make sure everything goes well. So 
Uh, it was great having her in the room in case I needed her, but I, I did make it on my own and just had her give me some feedback afterwards. And then the second time it got easier and the third time it was easier and then on and on and on. So now it's, now it's no big deal. And I would think going through that process and, you know, getting that competency checklist completed helped build your credibility with the physicians and nurses and other folks, because they were able to see that, hey, you weren't just someone who wanted to do something new, but you were working to build your own skills and expertise. So I'm sure that gave a little bit of confidence to what you were doing. Absolutely. And I definitely sought out any opportunity I could to get better as well. So a few years ago at one of the oncology nutrition practice group symposiums, they had a hands-on kind of little breakout session where we went with an infusion company who brought in a whole bunch of tube feeding equipment. And they even brought in like the pumps and poles and everything else for people who use continuous infusion and worked with us on that. So I definitely signed up for that one because I was like any extra education and experience I can get where someone's watching me, I wanna take advantage of it. So let's talk about the different types of feeding tubes. Which ones are you seeing most commonly in your patient population? So I've had a lot of experience both with just traditional G tubes. A lot of different brands are out there. So I've seen tons of different ones. Um, a lot of experience with those. And I've also had a lot of experience with, uh, adult Mickey buttons. So at my previous hospital, I was at, when I started working with enteral patients and developing this idea of a dietitian led enteral program, we had traditionally used regular, just regular G tubes. Um, and I was having a lot of issues with the particular brand that our interventional radiology department was using. They, they weren't super user-friendly and the, the, the caps broke a lot and we were just having a lot of issues with them. And a lot of the patients I was working with didn't have things like paid medical leave or FMLA or any of those things they could take advantage of, short-term disability. So they were trying to still work. And a lot of times in jobs like construction or things like that, where you don't necessarily want a g-tube attached to you while you're doing some of these activities and so uh, we started looking into this idea of the adult mickey button and so we actually started using it on a lot of the patients that we worked with there so i ended up getting a lot of experience with that which was something new for me and it was pretty cool to be on the front ends of that because no other hospitals in the area were using adult mickeys and it ended up being interesting because then we started getting neurology patients and other patients that could benefit coming and uh, I would actually help with their education as well. And we would uh, use the Mickeys in that population too. So I had a lot of good success with those. And so for anyone who's listening that works in oncology or neurology, I would encourage you to look into that option. Um, my current facility is a little more hesitant with the Mickey button. So I'm still working on a few physicians here to see what we can do. Um, so here we're using a lot more of the traditional G tubes. And again, it's a lot of different brands, some that have clamps, some that don't have clamps. So I've tried to get familiar with a wide range of them, uh, because they're all a little bit different because again, if it has a clamp or doesn't, it depends how you teach the patient, how to use it. Um, a Mickey button has an extension set that you have to know how to attach. So 
uh, meeting with some of the reps from the different companies was helpful. And then, like I said, when I was able to get my hands on a variety of different tubes, it was uh, helpful to be able to show the patients the different feeding methods too. I recently heard you speak at the Aspen Nutrition Science and Practice Conference. And, you know, I really enjoyed it because you shared a terrific story about a patient who eventually got a low profile feeding tube. And you know, it helped me personally connect with this type of patient and what they were living with. So could you share that story with our listeners? Sure. Um, hopefully they can put up with a long story, but I'm very passionate. I think this story has a big impact and it, it was very meaningful to me. Um, I had a patient very early on when I started working at the hospital, uh, really early on into this you know, enteral clinic that I was starting. And he had had a neck cancer uh, years ago, at least five years before I had met him. So he was in total remission, but he was having a lot of long-term side effects from the radiation that he had had. So he was working with our speech language pathologist quite frequently, three times a week usually, on his neck mobility, his swallowing, and so when I joined the facility, the, the speech pathologist had me get on board with his case as well. When I met him, he was only tolerating um, thick liquids and it had to be like the consistency of an insure original. So more of a thinner liquid, I guess. And he could only tolerate that consistency. So we couldn't use Insure Plus or anything more calorically dense. We had to use the Insure Original. And he was a tall guy. He was very active. So he was having to consume large, large, large amounts of Insure every single day. And he was okay with that. He didn't mind. He wasn't getting bored of it. But we started to notice he was having more frequent occurrences of pneumonia. So eventually over time, we were looking into this and it's, you know, it's turning out now he's aspirating these thinner liquids as well. So we started to have to have conversations about what's this going to mean long-term. You can't continue to have aspiration pneumonia. You know, eventually you're going to get a really severe case and it could kill you. There's just very difficult conversations between myself, the oncologist and the speech pathologist. And in one of our early on conversations, he had told me, no matter what happens and how this progresses, I don't want a feeding tube. I would rather die. And that took me by surprise a little bit, partly because I, I hadn't really at that point had a patient who this could be like a permanent situation for them. I mostly worked with patients who needed them six to 12 weeks and then we were able to take them out. So this is going to be now a permanent situation for him if we go this route. And it's just not something that he wanted. It, he said it would hurt his lifestyle too much. He wanted to work. He wanted to be active and he couldn't do those things and he didn't want to live. And he had a, his father was in his eighties and living in a different state. And his father actually had a feeding tube and he had the traditional G tube. And he's like, I don't like it. He doesn't like it. It's totally ruined his quality of life. And I just don't want to live like him. So I said, okay, you know, I have to respect your wishes. And I didn't know at this point that an adult Mickey button even existed. So kept working with him, found out kind of shortly after that conversation about low 
profile feeding tubes for adults. And I brought it up to him at his next visit. And I said, you know, I'm going to respect your wishes. We still have some time. You can still think about this, but I wanted to show you another option. So I had a, a button in my office to actually show him in person. And I showed him some of the information about it. I showed him how the extension sets worked and all that. And he's like, well, why doesn't everyone have this? Why doesn't my dad have this? And I was like, well, this is, you know, something that's still a little bit newer. Not everyone uses them, but this is a potential option for you. And I said, you know, does that make you feel any differently? And he was like, I think I would definitely consider it. Shortly after that conversation, he was admitted to an outside facility for aspiration pneumonia. And he actually called me from the ICU and he said, they said they can't treat me unless I, I have to stay NPO. They can't treat me. They can't get rid of this unless I agree to a feeding tube because they said, if I keep eating, it's going to kill me. And he goes, but they, they can't put in a Mickey button. They, they don't have the ability to do it. They said, I have to get a regular G tube and then have it exchanged. And I don't want that. I, I can't do that. And I said, well, your options are you can have it placed. We'll exchange it later when you get out of the hospital, or you can try to get them to transfer you here. And we can see if one of our doctors will put it in. So I talked to our physicians at our hospital. They said they would do it but he would have to get transferred. And somehow over the weekend, he managed to get himself transferred. I get a call from the physician. He's like, hey, he's here. I'm gonna put the button tube in, but he made me call you first because he wanted to make sure he got the right thing. <laughs> and he was adamant that I call you and clear it with you first. And I said, okay, you know, I obviously trust you. You're gonna put the right thing in, like, go ahead. So he did, he got the button, he is still living, you know, six years later, he's doing great, absolutely loves it. And it hasn't hurt his quality of life. He still goes on cruises, he still works, he does all the things he wants to do. So that's my, that's my story. It's such a great story. And I love that the patient requested transfer and specifically said, verify with the dietitian before you do anything. Yeah. I mean, talk about patient <laughs> empowerment. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of people that are um, as good at, you know, getting what they want as he is. So. Well, good for him and good for you and good for you for being such a strong advocate for the patient. I mean, I think that's just great. Well, thanks. I was, yeah, it, that just stuck with me forever. And it's always, you know, that, that story that I like to share because it shows what we can do for our patients. Yeah, Absolutely. So as you've built your own competency, you know, you've learned and you've grown as an oncology dietitian, what is your personal approach or style when you're working with a new patient to provide preoperative education or even help determine what type of tube would best fit their needs? So for the preoperative education, I usually ask them a lot of questions. I like to know, you know, what their thoughts are about the tubes, what they've seen in the past, you know, have they ever had a family member with a tube? What do they think they look like and how do you use them and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of like pretty bad preconceived notions about feeding tubes and how they operate and what they look like and everything else. And um, so a lot of times I spend a lot of time kind of alleviating fears about how they're placed and how you use them and you know, how they may or may not affect quality of life. And then um, from there, you know, like to figure out, you know, sometimes a, a low profile 
tube is great because somebody is very active, they play sports or they run or they work construction and it's a great option. Other times somebody has eyesight issues or dexterity issues, or I've even had patients, um, I had one in particular that I remember who lost some of his um, digits because of diabetes. And so for them, it's actually more difficult to have a low profile tube because it's harder to see and connect the extension tubing. So they do much better with the traditional tube. So those are some of the things I take into consideration when talking to them about what might be best in their situation. So yeah, just still a lot of time alleviating fears and then talking about the art specific, you know, needs. So for our listeners who may be interested in starting an, a dietitian led enteral feeding program at their own facility, what advice would you give them to get started? I think the competencies are hugely important. So if you're already really competent and you want to start a clinic, best thing would be to seek out the main stakeholders. So if you're an oncology like I am talking to like the medical oncologist, definitely the radiation oncologist, um, and then whoever does a lot of your tube placements. So at the facility I'm at now, it's a lot of, we have our big um, oncology surgical group. So they do a lot of our tubes. So I was used to working with interventional radiology before. So it depends on the facility. But, you know, identifying those stakeholders, trying to get everybody in a room or in a meeting to to talk about it. We, when I got to this facility and they had seen my resume, one of the things they actually asked me for was to start something similar. (laughs) They're like, we saw what you did and we want that here. So we actually had a big meeting with like our nursing leadership, our social work team and everyone who might be our nurse navigators and anyone else who might be involved in the process to identify who, who is responsible for each piece and how it should flow at this facility. And here I have a lot of support. So I actually have a lot less on my plate, but I do still do the education and the follow through and then the post um, follow up until the tubes are removed. So I definitely do that, but I have a lot of extra support from navigators and social work team here. So that's definitely like your clinic group is a huge part of it, but then obviously working to develop relationships with the surgeons or the physicians that you would be working with on this. And honestly, from what I've found, they are really happy for the help and happy to hand over the reins to somebody they feel is, you know, competent and able to take this on. And if you aren't at the point where you feel that you are ready for this, you don't have the training, then working on the competencies would be the next, actually the first step. So, you know, talking to the same stakeholders, but saying, you know, I, I would like to do this, but, you know, I feel that I need this first. I feel that I need to have some hands-on experience. You know, could I watch some consults with you? Could I come into the OR and, or into one of the viewing rooms and watch the procedure? Can I um, have you watch me while I do a patient and do a teach back and that kind of a thing? Yeah, well, that's really great advice. And we're seeing that theme across other podcast episodes where building relationships, collaborating with other members of the care team, and, you know, really just being assertive and placing the dietitian at the front of what's happening um, seems to be a, a theme of being successful. So that's great. Yeah. And I think it can, it can take some, that's like a whole nother part of growing, right. Is like being able to be assertive because it definitely wasn't my initial personality. 
I've gotten much more comfortable with what I know and am capable of, and that has made me a lot more assertive, <laughs> but it also helps garner a lot of respect when they realize you know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think that type of type of persona takes time to build and takes time to achieve. So can, do you remember how long did it take you to go from that novice to that highly competent practitioner? I would say, you know, after, you know, after my first few times of doing a feeding tube with a patient, I definitely felt comfortable, like, okay, this is the right thing to do. I can do this. Like I can be in charge of this. But then as complications started to pop up or things I had never seen before, I was like, oh, there's still so much I don't know. So I would say after honestly, a couple of years of doing it. I now feel like really comfortable where I see something, I know what it is. I know whether or not it's an emergency and what the next step should be. So I think that part takes a little more time only because you have to be exposed to a lot of different situations and not everybody is going to follow the same pattern and not everyone's going to have, you know, the smooth, this is the way it should go. It should be A, B, C, D, E, and you're done. You know, everybody's going to have slightly different nuances with their tubes. Like some of them leak and some of them don't. What does the leaking mean? Um, do they have granulation tissue? Does it matter? You know, there's just so much that you have to see and that takes time. So I would say it took a good two years before I felt like, okay, I've seen this before. I know what it is and I know what to do. Very good. Well, with that, um, we will conclude today's podcast. Thank you, Laura, so much for taking time out of your day to discuss this topic with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, if you are looking for ways to develop your own leadership skills, check out the DNS Career Mentoring Program at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.